Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Let's continue our study. Welcome. Luke chapter 22, 63 through 71. We are getting close to the end. Whether we'll finish this book by the end of the year, I don't know. I had hopes to, but uh, every once in a while things throw us a loop. Today's the title is You Can't Handle the Truth. Luke 22, 63 through 71. I, I assume that most of you have heard the, two, the term a kangaroo court. How many have heard that term before, a kangaroo court? A kangaroo court is an unauthorized, unofficial court the sole purpose of which is to provide the image of a fair legal process, but in actuality, the fate of the accused is already decided in advance, with no consideration being made as to the fairness of the situation. One such example is many of the show trials in the old Soviet Union. During Joseph Stalin's regime, regime in the Soviet Union, the government staged numerous show trials. These trials were characterized by fabricated charges, coerced confessions, and predetermined guilty verdicts. The accused had little to no chance of a fair defense, and the trials were used to eliminate perceived political enemies. And by the way, we know that that happens uh, in countries even today, as well as the United States, unfortunately, is that many times there are kangaroo courts. But as we come today, we're going to see one such of uh, kangaroo court. The final hours of Jesus' ministry on earth has arrived as he is betrayed, arrested, and abandoned by his closest companions. The hour of darkness has arrived as the passion of Christ begins. Now, as we come to today's passage, Luke records a kangaroo court that is not only illegal according to Jewish law, but is also dehumanizing as they cruelly mistreat Jesus. So with that, Luke chapter 22, the first part of the verse is here. Again, bring your Bibles if you have one or your, your phone, your, your iPad, whatever it may be. If you would like a copy of God's Word, a, a Bible, please let me know. I'd love to give one to you at the end of the service. But Luke chapter 22, look at verse 63 with me. <clears throat> now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Father, I pray that you open up this, this passage of scripture to our, to our hearts and to our minds, written 2,000 years ago, preserved here for us. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. In other words, it tells us how to be right, how to do right, and how to stay right. And help us to correct us when we go wrong. So, Father, as we consider what the, this beginning of Jesus' passion, what we call the passion of Jesus, the, the, the mockery of this trial, Lord, that we would understand how we should uh, uh, understand what, what you're trying to give us and also how we should apply it today. In your name we pray. Amen. 
Jesus had admitted, you might remember from last week, that those who came to arrest him, remember the soldiers and the chief priests and religious leaders, he had admitted to them earlier in the day that this is your hour in the power of darkness. Remember, uh, Peter grabbed his little sword and, and cut off the ear of one of the Roman soldiers as if he was going to defend Jesus. Again, his false bravado. But as we see, Jesus has put that sort of way. He heals the man's ear and he says, this is your hour. The hour of darkness has come. You are going to have your way. The Trinity's plan of redemption moves forward as Satan schemes to derail the redemption of God's children. Though it may seem that evil will triumph, we know that Jesus had come to destroy the works of the devil and that everything that is about to happen to Jesus is proceeding just as it was preordained by the Father. That's so important for us to understand. After Jesus is led to the house of the high priest, Luke describes the soldiers. Now listen, this is what's happening here as you and I read this. Luke is describing that the soldiers are playing a cruel, vicious, and degrading game of who did it. The game consists of blindfolding the prisoners, hitting him with a closed fist, then asking the victim to identify his attacker. attacker. Of course, they would not be, they would not be able to, uh, uh, to I don't know what I just wrote there, but let's forget about it. So let's just go on. This makes no sense to me at all. And even Grammarly didn't catch it. What's going on with Word and everything here? But what we see here is they're playing a vicious, cruel game. You can imagine. We, we do that as kids, right? You, you, you cut blindfold someone and you might you know, do something silly. A hot hands is another game that we used to play in this type of thing. But in this way, they're, they're, they're blaspheming Jesus. They're mocking him. He's, he's claimed to be a prophet. That's what everyone says about him. So they're saying, well, prove it. Prove you're a prophet. Prove it. They continue with this game. Their hatred and jealousy of Jesus led them to disregard all pretense of justice and human dignity that would be afforded to someone who is accused of a crime. In our scenario or in our justice system, you're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. In this case, he's guilty. There's no proof of innocence at all or declaration of innocence. Consider for a moment Luke's description of this game. First, they're mocking him. No one likes this. To subject to laughter or ridicule for one's pleasure. This is what the Son of God, or any man, you know, just think of any man. We can only take so much ridicule, so much mocking. You know how you feel when someone is mocking you, is ridiculing you, is making fun of you. If you are God, they're saying, then identify which one of us is hitting you. Prophesy. But not only that, then it's the beating. That's the act of aggression. It's usually with fists, but sometimes with other devices, such as the open hand or a whip or a rod. He was also blindfolded. You can imagine no one likes being blindfolded for any moment of time, especially if, in, 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 in situations of this. He would be disoriented. He wouldn't know if it to look left, right. He could not even duck or try to avoid the blows, not knowing when the next one would come. Then Luke describes that they kept asking him. It was going on and on and on. It wasn't just one or two, but it was continually 
Imagine how you feel at times when a child continually asks you the same question or mom, 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 dad, dad, dad. This is the pressure that Jesus is facing as an innocent man at this time. Thomas Schreiner writes that we're reminded of one, one writer who wrote in the, on the Gulag Archipelago. You'll see it here, this quote. He says, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, states speaking of nation states and classes speaking about social and economic, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. That's where evil passes. Apart from grace, we would do all that what the guards do. We have all participated in mocking other human beings, which is why we too need the same forgiveness that the Jewish guards need. This is coming from their heart, evil exemplified through these Roman soldiers and through their actions. Now Luke leaves out many of the indignities. Luke, Luke's recording of Jesus' trial is very brief in respect to the rest of the Gospels. But he leaves out many of the indignities that Jesus suffered, writing that in their attitudes and actions, the soldiers here are guilty of blasphemy themselves since they reject that Jesus was the Son of God. Luke then moves the narrative to the trial in verse 66. It says, When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people, they gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ... Tell us. So here we are. Jesus is in front of those that are going to determine his fate, and they ask him a question. Luke now points out that they had already been deciding Jesus' fate during a meeting that he did not record. They are now meeting between five and six to make it official. The religious leaders gather together at dawn and begin to deliberate on the charge against Jesus, the verdict. Dr. Schreiner notes that of this assembly, that in Roman times, this was the highest indigenous governing body in Judea. It was composed of the high priests, the elders, the elders, and the, and the scholars or the scribes. And they're meeting under this of the high ruling priest. This body was the ultimate authority, not only in religious matters, but also in legal and government affairs as well, insofar as it didn't encroach against the Roman rule, the authority of the Roman governor. He had to confirm any death sentence passed by this council. So this council, they had already met earlier in the evening. Luke does not record that. They already know what they're going to do with Jesus. Remember, they had already decided that they were going to kill him. They're just trying to find a reason, excuse to do so. However, what we have here is not some great August body of leaders who are ready to determine and, and see the evidence, but we see a kangaroo court. As John MacArthur knows, that the criminal trials were not deemed legal if held at night. So the Sanhedrin dutifully waited until daybreak to render the verdict that they had already agreed to. They're just going through the motions. The outcome of this trial had already been decided. You may recall that the religious leaders had decided some time ago that Jesus must die. They demand here to know if he is the Christ, the Messiah. They want to know, are you an anointed one? Are you claiming to be the promised one, the son of God that is to come? Jesus replies at the end of verse 67, if I tell you, you will not believe me. 
And if I ask you, who do you think I am? You will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. You may want to underline that phrase, but from now on, you shall see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now, Jesus fully understands their motives and their intentions to declare him guilty. He knows exactly what is happening here. There is nothing that he can say that will change their minds. Notice, Jesus does pronounce his innocence. He does not pronounce anything against them. Jesus just replies that they would not believe his testimony. They had not accepted his miracles. They attributed his wonderful working power to Satan in the past. Why would they believe him now? In other words, Jesus is saying here, it doesn't matter what I say. You can't handle the truth. You couldn't see it. You wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't know it if it was standing right in the face of you, which it is. Now, they refuse to acknowledge and accept his testimony, his teachings, and his triumph over the natural and supernatural world indicates their unbelief and seals their fate. Hearing Jesus speaking as one who had authority. Remember, the, 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 the gospel says that they were amazed at his teaching. Remember, they, they saw him heal the lame, the deaf, and those that could not hear. They saw him raise someone from the dead. And instead of accepting him and worshiping him, acknowledging him, they said, let's put this man to death. Earlier in a conversation founded in John chapter 10, I have it here on the monitor for you. We had read earlier that the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So here we have some people, there's a group, they want to know plainly, tell us, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? We've been looking for you. We've been praying for you. We've been expecting you, anticipating your, your coming. Jesus answered them, I told you, you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. See what I'm doing. Can any ordinary man do these things? But you not, not, do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Jesus then makes a shocking statement that seals his fate when he states that he is the Son of Man. Jesus used this commonly acknowledged messianic title of himself more than 80 times in the gospel. The Hebrew expression Son of Man appears over 107 times in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Most of it in the book of Ezekiel. It's used in three main ways. The Son of Man many times is used as a form of address to Ezekiel himself, the prophet. It's also used in contrast to the lowly status of humanity against the permanence and exalted dignity of God and the angels. In other words, here's the man of God, the Son of Man, but he is not the Son of God. He's not even angel, so he's a little bit lower. But it also is used of the Son of God in a signal that the end of history and the time of God's judgment. 
So when we see Jesus' words here, when he says, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God, he's quoting two verses. The first one is Psalms 110, where he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, until I conquer all your enemies and put them underneath, underneath your feet. But then I think you might have this on the monitor is Daniel 7, 13 through 14, where Daniel sees a vision. And Daniel says this, I saw in the night vision, in a dream, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. So in the flesh, he looked like you and I. And he came to the ancient of days, speaking of God, Yahweh, and was presented before him. And to him, speaking of this son of man, was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, and all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is Keep this up just for a, a moment, if you would. This is a powerful vision that is given, and this is uh, thought of as a messianic vision. When Jesus used this term, it would have pricked their ears as they would have understand exactly what he is saying, that he is the one that has been given dominion. He is stating that his rightful position is next to the throne room of God. Alarmed, they respond then in verse 70. So they all said after hearing him say this, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Jesus replies to the cross-examination by conceding their accusation. He is the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Anointed One of God, their Deliverer, their Savior, but not according to their expectation. You see, they desired the appearance of the Messiah and they anticipated his work to be more earthly, more practical and political as they yearned for the deliverance of the Roman Empire. See, they would read Daniel 7 and they saw victory, triumph. They saw redemption. They saw themselves delivered from the oppression that they have suffered for hundreds of years, beginning with the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Roman Empire. However... Jesus' ministry in delivering them from captivity, those that were oppressed, was focused not on their enslavement from politically, but their enslavement to the curse of sin and death. Then hence, they rejected the teachings and miracles of Jesus because his deliverance was much different than what they expected, what they anticipated. He was not the Christ, the Messiah, they deserved. In verse 71, they bring the interrogation to a close as they determine that Jesus has given them enough rope to declare him guilty. Look at verse 71. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We heard it ourselves from his own lips. The whole kangaroo court could be summarized as this. What's the charge? Blasphemy. He claims to be the Messiah. The prosecutor says, do you claim to be the Messiah? The defendant, Jesus says, well, you can't handle the truth. The prosecutor responds, well, are you claiming to be the son of God? And the defendant says, well, I don't disagree with you. 
the verdict is guilty as charged. The only thing left in this kangaroo court is the sentence. And the sentence for blasphemy is, does anyone know? Death. death. It's death. They finally reached the conclusion that Luke has shared earlier they'd already reached several chapters earlier. Their verdict, though, is a tragedy or a travesty of justice as they know Jesus is more than just a man. And that's one of the things as you read the gospel is many of them knew exactly who he was. They had no answers for his miracles, for his wonder-working power. Hence why they tried to divert and, and, and change and do misdirections. Well, it must be of Satan. But they knew Satan could not do such things. They knew that the devil had no power to do such things. Camille, the, the head, one of the head teachers, says, you know, it's better for one man to die. They understood who he was. Many of them did. Jesus was more than just a man. However, the hour of darkness prevails as they sentenced Jesus to death for the crime of blasphemy. Now, though the celebrary high five had not been invented yet, I'm sure they were well pleased with themselves as they begin now to plot their next move in convincing Pilate to carry out their sentence of death and we'll see that next week. Yet in their excitement, they failed to understand the true indictment was not against Jesus, but themselves, as they failed to recognize and acknowledge and worship the Son of God. Thinking that they had gotten the upper hand, Satan, who thinks that his scheme is working, they themselves wind up proving themselves to be indicted against the holy, a charge against a holy God. Of course, this is no surprise to Jesus nor to the Father, as this has been their plan all along. Over 500 years earlier, the Holy Spirit had prophesied through Isaiah of the Messiah that he would be despised and rejected by man. He would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He would be as one from whom men would hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This hour of darkness was all part of the Trinity's plan to redeem the children of God from the curse of sin and death. As Isaiah writes that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, was obedient in suffering the cruelty and indignity of sinful men whose hearts was filled with hate, anger, and jealousy. As Paul writes to the church of Philippi, I believe it may be here, it says in Jesus, speaking of Jesus, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Remember, Jesus became incarnate. He became man in the flesh, knowing exactly what was going to happen. When he went into that garden and he prayed, as we saw last week or the week before, is let this cup pass from me. He knew that it would not. He knew that he would have to pick up the cup of God's wrath and drink from it fully. Experience the mocking, the ridicule, 
the indignities of pain. Paul writes in Hebrews 5, 8, again on the screen, although he was a son, speaking of the Son of God, he learned obedience through what he suffered. As you and I think of the soldiers and the religious leaders, we always like to think, oh, we wouldn't do that. We would accept Jesus. But just like, well, if I was Peter, if I was the disciples, I wouldn't have run away. But yet that's who we are. We always like to look at the Bible and say, I'm the hero. I'm, the, I'm, I'm David, and, and, and I'm going to slay my giants. Not realizing that actually you are the giant. You are the Philistine. You are the Israelites who are cowering in fear. We're not the hero of the story. But although he was the son, he learned obedience through what is suffered. Ironically, unknown to the soldiers who cruelly and viciously mistreated him, Jesus is the last great prophet promised in Deuteronomy. I believe we may have this on the monitor, do we not? Okay. Back when Moses was still walking the earth and leading the men, the, 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 the Israelites through the desert. God the Father promised them. He says, I will raise up from them or for them a prophet like you. I will raise up a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he speak in my name, I myself will require of him. At his transfiguration, when the disciples were given a preview of the glory of Christ, the Father declared from the heavens and the earth, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. As they're mocking him and saying, oh, prophesy, if you are God, prophesy. He is the great prophet that they were looking for. They were to listen to his words, listen to his teachings. Yet they ignored him. Sadly, instead of listening and accepting him, they reject him, sensing him to death. The soldiers that beat Jesus callously called out for Jesus to prove that he was a prophet, using a violent game to mock him. Blinded, though, by the God of this world, speaking of Satan, they did not realize that the man that they were ridiculing created the very fist that struck him. In other words, we find from Scripture that Jesus' obedience to death involved creating these very men who would beat him and ridicule him. But also blinded by the God of this world were the religious leaders who ignored the word of God with all its clues and prophecies concerning the identity of the Messiah. If anyone should have recognized who Jesus was, it should have been these men, but yet, instead, they rejected him. Instead of condemning him with charges of heresy, they should have fallen on their feet and worshipped him, or fallen on their knees and worshipped him. Scripture writes of Jesus' identity as the Son of God when it says in Colossians, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, even these men 
these ones who judged him, these ones who cruelly misused him. In heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether they're thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all of these were created by him and for him. These men only have their authority due to God's work through Christ. It says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Then Hebrews 1, this might be on the monitor. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. At any moment, Jesus could have spoken and released himself and judged those men. He could have had them turn to dust at his feet. But after making purification for sins, he sat down where? At the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. From the scripture reading earlier from Landon to some of our songs to hear, we see that Jesus told the truth. The Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of God. Again, quoting Dr. Schreiner, he says, we know already from Luke's gospel that Jesus is the Son of God. His sonship is evident in his virginal uh, conception. It's affirmed by the divine voice of Jesus at, at Jesus' baptism and his transfiguration. He is recognized by Satan and his demons as being the Son of God. He is taught by Jesus himself and is implied in the parable of the beloved Son that's sent by the Father. Jesus is the great prophet. He is the Son of God. Jesus claims to have equal authority to Yahweh. That is what troubled them. And although they sat in judgment of him in this hour of darkness, one day those men will kneel before Jesus as the final judge, as the Apostle Paul writes. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on Christ the name that is above every name. Also that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. One day these men will recognize the man they blindfolded and beat. The man they took through this travesty, this kangaroo court. And they every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. However, at this moment they could not. Though the darkness seems to have the upper hand at this moment, the suffering of Christ will turn the tide as Satan may bruise the heel of Messiah. The Messiah will bruise his head. John writes that you know that he appeared, speaking of Jesus, in order to take away the sins of the world and in him there is no sin. He was an innocent man. So why is he undergoing this suffering? Because he's obedient to this suffering. He's enduring these indignities because he knows that he is going to destroy the works of Satan. He goes on to say that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. See, you and I stand because of the obedience of Christ. You and I have eternal life because what he has given us. The author of Hebrews writes that but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, 
crowned him with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he may taste death for everyone. This is terrible news that we're reading here. But it's good news for you and I that have accepted Christ because it's only through this suffering of Christ that you and I can be delivered from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and from the presence of sin. That's the gospel. We all have sinned and come short. In this story, you and I are the soldiers. We are the accusers. We are the ones who, who, who sealed his fate beforehand. We have spent our lives uh, rejecting him. The Bible tells us that we are disobedient children, that we are rebellious against God, that we deserve God's wrath. We deserve what Christ endured. Yet but God in his love chose to elect some of his children so that they may have eternal life. And he put into motion the redemption plan where Jesus would come and bear our sins, endure the punishment, drink the cup of wrath for us. So that when he says, it is finished, the God the Father can declare us righteous. That's how you and I stand today. As we consider this horrible scene and we cry out against the injustice of this kangaroo court, we must remember that we are the soldiers and religious leaders, as I've spoken of earlier. We're not the hero of the story. Once we were alienated from God, rejecting his son, we too are guilty of causing the suffering of Christ. Yet we can rejoice as well, knowing that his suffering serves to ransom us from our sin and the curse of death. It is by Christ's obedience that we are declared righteous and adopted by the Father. I pray as we come and we kind of understand this. Now, what do we do for this, this portion of Scripture? Familiar to us, but why do we handle it? What, what does it do for our life today? Well, I commend to you today that we must express our gratitude for our Savior and Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, who has paid the penalty of our sin and delivered us from the power of sin. We look forward to that day when he will return in glory to deliver us from the presence of sin and bring justice, peace, and righteousness. I'd like to close with this verse. It's found in Revelation 19.11. Again, John, one of the disciples, he gets this vision. He says, Then I saw heaven opened, Behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges, and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. One day Jesus will return, but this time not to suffer, but to rule in justice, in peace, and righteousness. Until that day, let us give thanks and worship to the one who endured for us that which we deserve. Amen? Every head bowed and every eye closed for just a moment as the worship team makes its way up and Randy for our prayer. I just want you to take a pause. I know this was a, a, a little bit quicker message, but I don't want us to miss what we find in those verses. So would you take a moment just to pause, consider what Jesus is undergoing the purpose
The fact that he is the son of God, the innocent for the guilty. Willing to die for us so that we could have life. Would you then pray and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to your mind and heart, not only this morning, but this week. How is it should you and I respond to the greatest gift of eternal life? And may God be glorified in all that we do. Randy, would you come and close this in prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.